Hello, memoir readers and writers. I've added some new merchandise to the Let's Talk Memoir store. I've got travel mugs and t-shirts and post-it notes and tote bags and all kinds of goodies for you and your favorite memoir lover. You can find a link to the Let's Talk Memoir store in three places, the show notes at the podcast app where you listen, my Instagram, which is at Ronit Plank in the bio, and that's a great place to get updates on the show anyway, so I hope you'll visit and then follow me, and also at RonitPlank.com on the main page and also on the Let's Talk Memoir page. I am having a great time designing some of these items, but if you visit the store and you have an idea for something that you don't see there, please message me on Instagram or you can contact me on my website and I will make it for you. And all throughout January 2024, I am keeping this survey about how you listen to Let's Talk Memoir and what kind of memoir content you'd like open. So you can also find the link for that survey. It's about 10 questions in the show notes and chime in so I can start designing episodes for you with you in mind. And now on to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Morgan Baker. She is an award-winning writer and professor at Emerson College. Her work is featured in the New York Times Magazine, the Boston Globe Magazine, the Brevity Blog, Talking Writing, the Boston Parents Paper, the Martha's Vineyard Times, the Bark, Modern Dog, Cognoscenti, and Hippocampus, among many regional and national publications. She is managing editor of The Bucket. She is the mother of two adult daughters and lives with her husband and two dogs in Cambridge, where she also quilts and bakes. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you for having me, Maroni. I'm excited to be here. I'm really happy that you're here, and I would love for you to share a little bit about your new memoir, Emptying the Nest. Okay, thank you. So Emptying the Nest is about identity, change, and mental health. And it's really about a year when we had a litter of puppies and we had to send the puppies out to their forever homes. And Maggie, my oldest, also left for college. And so that brought up a lot of loss for me. And so the book really addresses how I dealt with that loss both in like not a very good way and then in a better way and mm. and how my identity shifted along that timeline from being mother 100% of the time to having mother be part of my identity but not my whole thing. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you, you do move around in time a little bit, but that container of that year is really present. Did you know as the year's unfolded that you were going to have such a hard time saying goodbye to Maggie? That's a good question. I think I knew that I would have a hard time. Saying goodbye and change has always been hard for me. So I sort of anticipated that it would be difficult, but I had no idea that I would crash and burn the way I did. Mm -hmm. And your husband, you've been with your husband for a really, really long time. And so the two of you were kind of in this together navigating, but you do, you do talk a whole bunch about your battle with depression and the different medicines your doctor had you try. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about 
how you arrived at a at a medicine or at a framework or or therapeutic practice that worked and how you care for yourself you know how you made it through so my husband was instrumental in helping me and we actually just celebrated our 35th anniversary so oh wow congratulations (laughs) thank you thank you so he's he's really a backbone to me but i have had depression for a very long time some of it undiagnosed and then some diagnosed i did try a bunch of different medicines and none of them really helped and one of them actually made me fall asleep while I was driving a car, mm-hmm. which really wasn't a very beneficial side effect. So I ended up on an older med called nortriptyline. And for whatever reason, it's worked. And so I continue. So for me now, I continue to take my medicine. I am with a new therapist who I really like and who has helped me find other ways of looking at myself and giving me like homework to do. Hmm. And the other thing that I do a lot now is I take, I try to take time out of every day for me. So I either read a book for half an hour or I quilt for a little bit, or I even take a nap. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard to do that every day because it's too, the day is too busy, Mm -hmm. but I've recognized how important time for ourselves is. I think we get very caught up in giving, 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 and sometimes you have to give back to yourself. Mm. And you feel, do you feel like during the time when you were raising the, the kids and they were home that you, you didn't do that at all? Or did you not understand that you needed time for yourself? Or did you, I know for me, there's an element of guilt or there has been a threat of guilt in my mothering or in my worry about mothering. And my husband has helped me over the years to understand that, you know, you know, when I'm doing a good enough job and that I don't have to worry about certain things. And so do do you know why you kept yourself so busy with everybody else? I do. I think some of it was the way I was raised to just be productive all the time. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so myself, uh, myself worth was tied into being busy all the time. And I think looking back now, I, my, I guess what I would say to young mothers is to make sure that you do do something for yourself. I, I really thought that to be a good mother, I had to like give everything And so I didn't do things like I didn't exercise as much and I didn't, you know, I did read, but I didn't take as much time for me. I don't think I realized how building up a reservoir of strength and good feelings about myself would benefit my kids, if if that makes sense. Right. No, of course. I think that I hear that a lot more these days, at least as my kids were coming up because they're a little younger than yours or 16 and 18 right now. But that idea of like taking care of yourself is taking care of your kids as well. And that seemed revolutionary to me when I first learned that. And it just, you know, I have a funny relationship to the idea of what a mother is and what a mother should do just because the way I grew up. So it's like reinventing it. Like each time I feel like each time someone becomes a mother, we reinvent or have to start all over again with figuring out what it means. I agree. And I also think, that each child is different. So even if you're mothering 
two children in the same family, you mother each of them or parent yeah. each of them differently. You know, they yeah. have different temp they have different temperaments, they have different needs. And I definitely uh, somebody said made the analogy, this is not original to me, but that taking care of yourself is taking care of others and it's the same thing as when you're in a plane if yeah. the oxygen mask drops down, you know, and I, it took me a long time to figure out, like, why wouldn't I put it on my them first? Why, <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> yeah, so. yeah. And I wonder, like, I think it seems much clearer when you make it through some of those phases of parenting. Like, now you have a better sense of it, and you just gave advice to people who might be younger mothers. But going through it is just not – it's not something that we incorporate necessarily. And also, you – I think you, you write in your acknowledgments that you wanted – a book like this you would have really liked a book mm. like this when you were going through the worst part of this so do you feel like there is a little more attention being paid to this issue of of losing your kids to their to their new lives mm-hmm. or depression or do you feel like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done i think that there's a lot of mother shaming out there and judgment and so i think a lot of mothers probably don't come out and say when they're really struggling but i do think mental health just in general i think there's more awareness about it now and Mm -hmm. there's less of a stigma but i still think that there is enough of a like don't talk about this Mm -hmm. feeling that not everybody gets the help or the support that they need but I also think that just as time goes on, people are more aware and mothers are, hopefully they're more supportive of each other and it doesn't, and people don't judge. Like, I know I, you know, it was like people, mothers who worked full-time, mothers who mothered full-time, and then, you know, those who tried to do both. And there's always sort of with I fall in this camp mm-hmm. and there shouldn't be different camps. There should just be like, we're all mothers and we're all, what you said we're all learning as we go there's no Mm -hmm. roadmap for this so Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the content in the book and how much was fresh for the book and whether or not you had published any of the pieces separately as isolated essays or articles I so I did do two things one was I did have an essay in an anthology called done darkness and it was all about depression and I, so I took some a part of the book and made it into a standalone essay, and it was tied mostly to my pottery hobby. And but the other thing, I I don't think that there were other pieces. I wanted to do other pieces, and I certainly tried. But what I did do, and where the book's origin came from, was when we had the litter of puppies. I kept a blog, and mm. so for the whole time that we were raising the puppies and I was realizing how much the puppy experience mirrored or interfaced with my experience of giving birth and having, being a mother and watching our dog go through this, that was all in a blog. And so Mm. when I decided to try it as a book, I had all that there to draw on. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so helpful. 
And I bet you had a lot of engagement with that blog because people, I mean, especially, well, a lot of people are interested in puppies and, and dogs and breeding and stuff. But I would imagine that people who follow this and want their own pups are probably really captivated by those stories. Yeah, it was fun. And also, I put a lot of photographs up. So yeah, that was, you know, pictures of puppies are engaging. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have three dogs. So I've, I've kind of I I felt a lot of what you were talking about with living with all those these those pups. I was hoping you could read that excerpt that we talked about. And, and if you want, you can set it in time or add a little bit of detail about what time in their, you know, academic lives this was or where you were mental health wise. Okay, so my daughter had left for college, and this was sort of after Christmas um, or the holiday season, and I was beginning to feel better slowly, and I was really struggling with how to integrate my mental health with being a mother. Yeah, it was it was challenging, but I did it. So this is this is um, at that point, I didn't want to push my children away. I wanted to always be a mother to them. But when the depression was at its worst, it was hard to remember that. Fear, pain, and unhappiness, I've learned, can change your behavior even if you don't want them to. On the other end, I had to be patient with the one who was struggling, whether it was with me or someone else. I couldn't snap my fingers and have everything back the way I wanted. Getting better was a process. I wish I had woken up one morning a changed person, one of those perky, upbeat, look-on-the-bright-side-of-life people who always have something positive to say about everything. That didn't happen. I'm not that person. And honestly, sometimes those people are just too much for me to bear. Do they have problems and securities, or do they just bury them in a deep underground tunnel? Climbing out of a depression is slow. It's a few steps forward and then a quick slide backwards, like in the movie Homeward Bound. When Shadow, the older dog, falls into a hole and tries to climb out of it, as he and his dog and cat companions are making their way home after being separated from their humans. He keeps slipping backwards and tells his buddies to go on without him. But with a cheering section above the hole, Shadow keeps trying, and after a few false starts, he gets out, although viewers don't know that for a while. The suspense is a killer. With Matt, Maggie, Ellie, and my friends rooting for me, I kept at it, and over time, I got out of my hole. Matt said he could tell when I was back and was glad to see me. I laughed more. I danced around the house. I played with the dogs. Ellie and I watched more TV. I stopped asking Matt if he regretted marrying me. I went outside without looking over my shoulder, and I started working on Maggie's quilt again. I sent it before March break. I didn't collapse at the post office or a bookstore. I ate and I read. I didn't trust feeling better, however, convinced something would derail me. What if I took on too much work? Would Ellie's upcoming high school graduation send me running? Would Matt have another life-threatening allergic reaction? Could I keep my daughter safe? Despite those fears, I managed to move forward. Part of climbing out was learning to reframe myself, to recognize that my world was changing. I needed to like myself with my bumps and curves. My children were separating from me. The time had come for me to get a grip. This didn't happen overnight. It was an ongoing challenge. Thank you. 
I, something occurred to me because depression and you're you're talking about what you experienced it does weave its way through the book especially toward I would say and maybe you would disagree but the middle of the book I think the attention to depression and mental health kind of ramps up a little bit more mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it at you know you continue in that vein and you really take the reader on the the path that you had to walk to figure out what was going to work. I felt so much for you about, I mean, a lot of a lot of what you're going through, but also how you juggle your your work as a teacher because you work at Emerson. You still are a teacher at Emerson, right? Mm-hmm. I am. Yeah, and I felt for you because I'm a writer and I do these other things as well. How torn or how difficult it can be to show up for all of these things to show up as a teacher who cares and and makes a livelihood this way to show up for your writing to show up for your family to to bring your energy to a classroom and so i'm wondering how you balance all that and what you especially enjoy working with students on so i actually found two things one teaching at that time period in my life was a little challenging because i was so down in the dumps if you want so it was it was challenging it was also challenging because i've always shared stories in my classrooms about my kids and it they're usually funny stories and then Mm -hmm. suddenly my kids were as old as my students and that just really was a turning point because i thought oh i can't tell these stories anymore (laughs) and and i also the year maggie left I kept, I know a lot about what college students do and say and how they live their lives because they write about it and mm-hmm. talk about it. So every time one of them would say, oh, I really got drunk this weekend. We went to this really fun party. I'd be like, oh my God, is that what Maggie's doing? <laughs> and so I kept, so it was hard to separate. It was hard for me to like look at my students in one, you know, one vein and then look at Maggie. But the other thing that I found was, and, and it's still true, I, I've just been talking about it recently, is teaching is a lot of work. The prepping and the grading and the feedback and everything is, you know, very, can be draining. But being in a classroom is one of the most fun things in the world. Mm-hmm. And I love my students. I love being, I love the you know, hour and 45 minutes that I get to spend with a group of students at Emerson. They're interesting, they're funny, they're smart. And also when I'm teaching, everything else falls to the side. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm so focused that, you know, anything that's disturbing my real world out there isn't, doesn't get me when I'm in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually talking about your daughters, in the book, you do share a bit about each of their mental health. And if I've got this correct, one has OCD, the other had anxiety or has anxiety. I'm curious how you arrived on what and how much to share in your pages and what you discussed with them prior to publishing and how they feel about it now. Everybody in the family has anxiety to some point. One does have OCD and the other has some other issues. And I actually was talking to Maggie earlier and I said, you know, I was going to talk to you and blah, blah, blah. And I, they basically told me what I could include and where my boundaries were. And I couldn't say things that they didn't want me to say. And so I honored that. And I also let them read everything that I wrote and they 
you know, checked off on it. So they felt that they were, I mean, their story does intersect with mine. So it would be hard to write this without them in it. Mm-hmm. But but it was really my story, and I didn't want to make it too much about them. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think I did a decent job of that. I think writing about other, people don't ask to be written about, and so I think writing about other people, you have to have compassion for them, mm-hmm. and you have to have compassion for yourself, and you have to recognize who they are in relation to you. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in my acknowledgments, I thank them for letting me share their stories as they intersected with mine. So, and I'm very grateful to them that they did give me sort of the okay for certain things. Mm-hmm. And they, are they in their late 20s now or mid 20s? I'm trying to figure that out. So my younger daughter's 28 and my older daughter's 31, married uh, mm-hmm. and lives on the other side of the country. That's what I thought. And I was curious what your relationship is like with them now and with parenting or mothering. How have you, where have you arrived on that connection and that letting go? I think the whole thing about letting go is that that's what we all sort of want for our children is them to be independent and self-sufficient and happy. And I, I have learned over the years for, with the adult children is to follow their lead or try to follow their lead and let them sort of decide how much they want me in their lives and how much they need to have their own identity separate from me. And, you know, sometimes I wish that I saw them more than I do. And But, mm-hmm. you know, I like knowing that they're doing what they want to do and moving forward with their lives. Yeah, I'm already anticipating how hard it's going to be. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're like, oh, you don't even know the half of it. I, yeah. I mean, my husband and I, we look around, we still have them here for a little bit longer, but we're sort of like feeling the the phantoms of the future, you know, in, encroaching about how empty the house is going to be. I, I know I should stay more present, but sometimes I just, I guess I'm trying to prepare myself a little bit. I think if you if you prepare yourself, It's hard regardless, but I think some people just get knocked on their butts because they don't realize that it's going to be as hard as it is. And I think you have to, I now wish I had thought I had done more prepping for it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. had put more scaffolding, I guess, into my life. Which is funny too to hear because you were so busy anyway, Mm. right? Like it's not like you didn't have a career, or mm. art that you loved, right? Or a husband that you were really close to. You still, you had a lot going on and it was still very difficult. Yeah. Um, I know I was thinking about that. It was like, so what was the difference? I think some of it, I actually like had to slow down. Mm-hmm. I think I kept myself so busy so that I didn't think about it. Yeah, and then, I, yeah. and then I was sort of like, okay, this isn't working no matter what I'm doing. This is just not helping. Mm-hmm. So then I slowed down and allowed the feelings in. It's like everybody says about whatever feeling you're feeling, Mm -hmm. because you have to feel them. You know, it's grief and you can't just like run away from it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not going to help ultimately. Like there's no escaping. There's no escape. Well, let me ask about this. I was wondering for you when you were writing the book and putting together this story of grappling with your mental health and how low you got and how 
badly you felt sometimes. A lot of memoirists, you know, we talk a lot when we read memoir about trauma and how to manage maybe the way that we're experiencing the reliving of details that are difficult and jarring. So do you have any advice or did you learn anything about getting some of this more painful material on the page? Is there anything you would say about that that you you learned as you were conveying your story on the page? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I have my sister once told me she's like, I noticed that when people don't know how to answer, I don't know if this is true, Morgan. They'll always say, "That's an interesting question." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or well, when they don't really like the question, yeah, is that true? I, I think it's a way of pausing, um, yeah. so I can gather my thoughts. <laughs> I, it's a good question, and I think uh, for me, I actually kept a lot of the details very vague for a while because it was difficult to write about and to sort of revisit. And then an editor, I gave like 10 pages around the sort of the worst of the depression. I gave 10 pages to an editor to read and she sent it back and she said, you need to get down and dirty and really talk about you know, what you were thinking and feeling. And I was like, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> well, there it is right there again. Yeah. There's no escape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay. So I did it. I wrote stuff. And then I have to say, there was a time when I had to proofread a galley or something. And I got there and I was like, I can't read this. Because mm -hmm. it's still, when I read it, I mean, I have read it a few times. But when I read it, it really does come back and it's mm -hmm. like oh my god this was not fun mm -hmm. um and it was hard on and i feel guilty because it was hard on everybody in my family and mm -hmm. that you know i didn't set out to make them worried about me mm -hmm. it, yeah and that it's funny too because we do deal memoirists do deal with a lot of fraught material and revisit a lot of memories and experiences that are not ones we'd want to live again. So it kind of begs the question, you know, why do you, why excavate it? Why do you write about it? Well, so I'll answer that and the part of the other question, which I forgot to answer, which is what do I tell my students or other writers? Mm -hmm. And I think part of addressing the difficult aspects of your life, whatever that trauma may have been, it helps put closure on it and it helps also for me anyway and I think other memoirs it helps me understand it and feel more in control of it because when it's going on you don't have any control over whatever the trauma is it's trauma and mm -hmm. you know you're sort of like thrown into a whirlpool and you, you're doing your best to just get out of it and then mm -hmm. writing about it, all of a sudden you do get to control what is what you're saying and what you're sharing. And you get to understand how that drama affected your life moving mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. I agree about that. I find that there is something, I don't know if the word is satisfying. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about when it comes to this this way of sharing stories and what it gives us as writers. But I do feel like it does give you, it sort of gives you the reins back a little bit. You know, it, yeah. it kind of can be very empowering that way. There's this quote that I pulled uh, with a question I have about it. And 
I'm really excited to hear your answer. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, Morgan. Um, Maybe it's another interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the quote. Years later, a new therapist suggested I find five ways to identify myself which did not include mother. So my question is, what have you come to understand about identity? I have done a lot of thinking about identity recently, and I think identity is very fluid. I think as we go through life, our identities shift, even if the even if the same sort of word is put to it. So mother, for instance, that my identity as a mother has shifted. It's very different from, and I think that's what, it took me a while to understand that you can still be a mother, but it's a different form of being a mother. And and I think even when, if you're a sibling, your identity as a sibling shifts over time. And there are other pieces of your life that also come up. I, over the pandemic, I made 14 quilts. All of a sudden being a quilter was like front and foremost. So I think identity, I th and I also think, I think identity is fluid. And I think identifying your identities is empowering also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, what does it feel like to have your story in the world now? So part of it is like, oh, my God, I've told everybody how depressed I got. This is really horrifying. And mm -hmm. some people who know me come up and say, oh, my God, I had no idea I got that bad. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. ha, ha, ha. but the other part is that I f that I'm really happy that it's out there. I'm really, really happy. And I'm mm. very proud of myself for sticking with it over many years. And I also think that, and I obviously, this sounds more like pat on my back than I mean it to, but I think I've put out in the world a, a story that is not just mine. You know, mm -hmm. I think... And I think that goes back to, you know, I wrote it because I wish I could have read it. Um, and I looked for books like this and I couldn't find anything. So I, and I think, I think mothers, parents in general, you know, you have to learn how to let your children grow and go. Mm -hmm. So I am, no, I'm very happy it's out there. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give to writers working on their memoirs? Not to give up to stick with it, or if you need to, like I did, put it away for a year or two or whatever, but it's always there. And not to worry about the reader. You're To write this because this is important for you and, and not to worry about the structure, that the structure will come when it's time for that to come and to see if what kind of questions you're trying to answer. What memoirs do you recommend? What do you like to suggest students read or that you think memoirists really need to read? So I've been thinking about this whenever I also teach privately on Zoom and when somebody's working on a particular topic, I, I in my little office where I'm sitting right now, I have a bookcase full of memoirs. All my novels are in another room. This mm -hmm. is just my memoir room. So I look at my bookshelves and I try to find things that would be helpful. But the ones that really spoke to me, first two that really meant a great deal to me were A Three Dog Life by Abigail Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I would say anything written by her is worth reading. Growing Up by Russell Baker 
It's a really old memoir, but it was probably the first one that I've ever read, and I just was involved with it. Hmm. And some of the more re- oh, and then I also read when I was writing mine early on. I read this little tiny one that I don't know how I found it. It's called "By the Iowa Sea" by Joe Joe Blair, and the structure that he had. I read it, and all of a sudden I went, "Oh my God, that's my structure." And so that was good. I also love, love, love In Love by Amy Bloom. It is the most, you can't get through it without crying, but it is a beautiful, beautiful story. The Suicide Index by Joan Wickersham. Surviving the White Gaze by Rebecca Carroll. And uh, How to Make a Slave by Gerald Walker, who teaches at Emerson. And it's a collection of essays. So those are the ones, yeah, they're all really great. And they all write, they're all about different things. And you walk away, you walk away feeling like either you've been heard or you're learning something new. Mm, Great. I haven't read some of those, like a bunch of those I haven't read. I'm excited to add them to my list. (laughs) I feel like one day someone's going to find me under a pile of books and I'll never be heard from again. Um, Okay. And where can people find you? Oh, so my website is buymorganbaker.com, all one word, because who knew Morgan Baker was so popular a name? (laughs) I love, I have to say, every time I type your name or I write your name, I think of your name, I'm like, that is a really, really good name. Uh, uh, Thank you. Uh, It's a fun name. I like it. But I thought I was so unique. And then, you know, when I went to make a website, they were like, nope, Morgan Baker's taken. So was this. I was like, what? So by Morgan Baker. And then I am also on Instagram as mmorgbb, because my first name actually is Mary, but I don't use it. So it's M for Mary, Morg for Morgan, BB for my last name and my husband's last name. And then I'm on Facebook. Okay. So I'll yeah. put everything. I'll put the books and the way to contact you in the show notes so people can find you. And I'm really happy we got a chance to talk. Thank you so much for for answering those questions, including the interesting ones. <laughs> I mean, the quote, interesting right, ones. Right. No, I know. I, that's great. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.